0: Amen, And you may be seated. Really good to see all of you here this morning. This is our final Sunday in our series Thrive. What does a thriving church look like in trying times? And we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to finish this chapter off in verses 17 through 20. If I only had about 20 minutes or so to train spiritual leaders, whether they be uh, pastors, people working in a church, ministry leaders working with college kids, small group leaders, parents, grandparents, this probably would be the text that I would pick because they give us the three traits that are absolutely foundational for relational leaders. If you are going to be a thriving spiritual leader, this text is really going to make all the difference. The presence or absence of the three traits we're going to talk about today that are found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, there will make all the difference. What does it look like? How can you really grow as a relational spiritual leader? What do thriving spiritual leaders look like? Well, that's what we find here, and I want to give you the very first trait. This is something that we all must have. In fact, we're all looking for, and that first trait is this, that we engage with love. This is what God is developing in his people that we learn to engage with love. And you'll see it in display here in verse 17. Paul writes, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Did you see that? Verse 17 just is oozing and overwhelming with this great love of, this love for the Thessalonians. And friends, that's what is needed. If, if we are going to be effective, as parents, as grandparents, in ministry, if you see your life as a ministry, meaning what you do later this afternoon, the job that you go to, the family that you're investing in, if you want to be effective, you need to be engaging with love. And you see it, Paul is saying, brethren, he, he even begins by talking about the family relationship. Twenty-one times in First and Second Thessalonians, Paul uses this word. It's the family word. We're in it together. It's brothers and sisters. We're family. I so eagerly wanted to be with you to see you in person. All the more eager to be able to do, excuse me to do this. But the problem is, he was being hindered, and problems arose that that couldn't happen. But before we talk about those, you need to see the eagerness to engage with love. Um, that, That word, having been taken away, speaks of not only a separation, but the agony that comes with it. You see, his heart was in it. If you and I are going to be effective, we have to love people from the heart. That is why God is at work in the midst of his people to move us from self-centered to Savior-centered, to take our hearts that are so prone to just be focused on us, to actually be focused on God and people and to love them as he does. If you look at the New Testament, you can't miss how frequently love features in Paul's relationships with people. He not only has this just zealous love for God, hence moving forward with the gospel, but he really loves people from the heart. Like in Philippians chapter 1, when he's writing to them, he says this, beginning in verse 7, he says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, and then listen to this, because I have you in my heart. That's the secret. You have to have people in your heart. I want you to know you can get hurt. You will. People are going to let you down. But if you're going to be effective, you have to engage with love. And he says, I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, you might think like, hey, you know what? I don't actually really like people all that much, okay? I'm really not interested. They generally are a nuisance. I want you to know that may be your orientation, but let's see what does Jesus do when he takes over your heart and when his love starts flowing through your life. And you see, you and I, we don't have the wherewithal to really love people we might be annoyed by them and the different things that they're doing. And, wow, this is really interrupting my schedule or what I have planned for my life for this day. We come to a place where we are engaging with love. You don't have the resources to do it. This isn't like, well, you better get it figured out and be a little nicer. No. Let me give you the verse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. There it is. You might want to memorize that verse. We love because he first loved us. If we're to be effective in engaging people, we have to seek the Lord and ask God, would you have your love flow through my life? You see, every relationship needs a little TLC. Anybody heard of that? What, what is TLC? Tender, loving care. Okay, so you're like, okay, I know that. But what does TLC actually look like? Well, let me make it real simple, use that, the same letters. It's talk, listen, and connect. Talk, listen, and connect. You want to listen to understand them. You're, you're talking with them, but you are looking to connect at a heart level. When you can communicate that, you're communicating love, and that will make you effective as a spiritual leader. So if you're going to be a thriving spiritual leader, let me tell you what God is seeking to develop in your life. First of all, that we are learning to engage with love. But second, we learn to endure with grace. If you are a spiritual leader, you are going to face spiritual opposition. And that's exactly what Paul writes about in the very next verse. In verse 18, he says, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us you see that? He's saying, man, we love you. Our heart is for you. We wanted to come to you, but we were unable. Satan hindered us. Now, Satan, he's got a variety of names in the Bible. The devil, the serpent, the accuser of the brethren, the spirit of the power of the air. The great adversary. Satan was actually a a high archangel, created with brilliance, greatness. And yet what happened is pride overtook him. He wanted to be God. And not only did this pride overwhelm him, but he led a rebellion. And there were actual like a host of angels that actually defected with him. God cast them out from heaven and they have and Satan is the leader of this this great adversarial force to bring disruption and to try to bring an end to the work that God is doing and it's it's a rebellion that continues now you need to understand that that Satan is under the economy and the domain of God and his sovereignty And God is allowing this, but he is a fierce adversary. He is looking to disrupt, to break up any work of God. It has been started all the way from the garden. It continues to this very day. Now, you're like thinking like, well, wait, like are Satan and God, they're about kind of on the same level and we're going to find out like who might win? No, if you want to understand what happens in the end, just look at the book of Revelation. God is the absolute victor. But I can assure you that Satan is seeking to create as much disruption to what God is doing in this world and to his kingdom as possible. In fact, you see it here in verse 18. He says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. That word hinder has the idea to to cut up or break up. It speaks of like military. So like, for instance, to break up like a cobblestone road, to make it impassable, or to blow up a bridge, or to prevent an army from moving forward. That's the word. It's to break up. And he said, we wanted to come, but Satan hindered us. So how does Satan hinder the work of God? God's sovereign, yet he's allowing for this time Satan to actually be his adversary and to create all sorts of havoc. How does he hinder the work of God? Well, let me give you a few ways you'll find that what was true in Paul's experience is true even now first of all there are difficulties that come and satan will bring them difficulties political financial relational circumstantial satan will do whatever he can to try to stop the advancement of the gospel and of his people moving of god's people moving forward there are also dangers To affect your well-being. Now, here in the United States, when we talk about dangers, like you might be inconvenienced and sweat a little identifying with Christ and maybe take some heat from some folks. I want you to know the temperature is rising in our country rapidly. But I also want you to be aware that we have brothers and sisters around the world. Their faith in Christ and the fact that they will not compromise has led to a loss of jobs had them ripped from their families and disowned, and in some cases tortured, imprisoned, and even paying the ultimate price, dying for their faith, Satan will bring dangers, hindrances. And let me give you one other. There's not only all the the dangers and there's the difficulties, but there is the discouragement, and he seems to be a master at this, to get you to a place where you give up. You will not engage. You're just going to, this is too hard. This is difficult. I've got fatigue. There's frustrations. There's failure. I've got my own fears. There's disappointments. And you sit out. It's a hindrance that comes. And I think we all face it. Paul certainly did. But it's interesting when the New Testament writers place special emphasis on the fact that if you are a Christian and you're walking with God... You have a target on your back. Peter writes of this, First Peter chapter five, verses eight and nine. He says, "Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. He's prowling about. he's looking to tear down. But I want you to know, Satan may hinder, he may be harmful, he may be hostile, but he cannot halt the work of God. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ said this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus has promised and he is at work at this very moment building his church bringing people into the kingdom giving them the gospel of the kingdom but also having them grow fully mature as worshipers that love God and are serving him that are unashamed of the gospel he promised and he is doing it so sovereign and so powerful is God that God can allow Satan in this adversarial work to hinder the the gospel and him accomplishing his work. And in fact, it's happening even as we speak. You know, it's possible that had they, like Paul and the team, made it back to Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians may not have written, and we may not have had these canonical books. But you see, God allowed even that hindrance where they couldn't come for Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write these letters. Letters that we are studying, that are life-giving, even in this very moment. That is the nature of our God. And furthermore, the hindrances of keeping Paul and the team from them, you know what happened? God shepherded those people. And the Thessalonians, you know what they were doing? They were thriving in the midst of adversaries. Why? Because God was at work. That is how God works. God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, right? And that's what we see here. But friends, I want you to know, if you are a frontline ministry, that means that you take your role as a parent or a grandparent seriously. You see your life as a ministry. You're not doing a job. You're not just showing up at school. You recognize I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I'm going to honor God, use the gifts that God has given me, and I'm going to engage people. I'm going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and I'm going to love people. I'm going to point people to Christ. I am not going to be superficial and not going to be complacent. I am going to be a courageous Christian by the grace of God. So what happens, though, when you face all your discouragement and the dangers and the difficulties and you want to give up? I mean, I face them. I can tell you there are times where, like, you know, I'm pretty sure... Life would be a lot easier, and I'd probably be happier if I just dug ditches for my life. Do you ever feel like that? It's difficult. It's discouraging. You're going to have disappointments. What will keep you engaged and moving forward when you feel like you've taken a beating? I'll tell you. God's grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor that is found in the riches of relationship with Christ. Undeserved, but just overwhelming, how God just pours this out in our lives. Grace to give strength, peace, joy, a new perspective, hope. It all comes from the Holy Spirit. And what God does is He uses His presence, He uses His Word, and He uses His people. All of these are means of grace so that we will endure with grace. Because if you are going to be a thriving, relational, spiritual leader, you are going to face difficulties, it's going to be challenging, and you're going to want to give up. What will keep you engaged and move forward? God's grace. We just keep going back to Jesus. And friends, you can read about it. Uh, I certainly have. But you really... In order to understand what Paul is writing about, you've got to experience it. And it's hard. So difficult, Paul even wrote of these experiences. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, he wrote of the difficulties and what allowed him to thrive in the midst of it. He says this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he, God, said to him, listen to this, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. My grace, the riches of my relationship, me, I'm sufficient for you. And when we trust in, when we rest in, and we engage in this relationship with Jesus, we have the grace, the grace to endure well. Friends, if you want to really be a thriving spiritual leader... You have to engage with love. You have to endure with grace. And there's one other trait that he gives us. It's found in verses 19 through 20. You have to encourage with vision. Look what he says. "'For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy.'" What keeps us moving forward and how we are effective with others is if we, if we can cast vision and live with vision, having a kingdom perspective, an eternal mindset. You can't just live for the here and now. You have to see beyond the present day, beyond the week, to the future glory, to the coming of Christ himself. It's that long-term perspective. We're so conditioned to think about here and now and like, oh, these next two days. Yeah, you got to think about the next two days But really, to be a thriving spiritual leader, think of Jesus and his return. Think of eternity. That's what we're moving to. So you're not just thrown off by the dynamics and the dips and highs and lows of the everyday life. And that's what he's presenting here. He's saying, who is our hope? Who is the one that actually gives us really hope about the future or joy our reason for rejoicing? What what really brings delight? Or our crown of exaltation. Who is it? He says, you are. You. When we think of the return of Jesus, the reason we're pouring our lives into you is because you're our hope. You are our joy. You see, they were living for joy, joy in God. It's exactly what we see in Jesus. You remember in Hebrews chapter 12? Who for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. Why did he go through the cross? Why? Not only just the physical anguish of being crucified, but the spiritual anguish of becoming sin on our behalf. Why did he do it? For the joy set before him. What is that joy? The joy that knowing by going through this agony... He would present to the Father a redeemed humanity that not only is trusting in his Messiah, but has grown mature. They're worshipers of him. They love him. Friends, that is the joy to present this gift to the Father. And it's that same joy that Paul had. Not that Paul in any way could redeem anybody. He can't save anybody from their sins, no. But he had the joy that he's looking for, that God could use him in all his weaknesses, failures, and frailties in presenting the Thessalonians, and really all believers, to the Father, to the Son, and it's a joy. And then notice how he referred to them as the, you are a crown of exaltation. You are. Now, you and I don't refer to people as like, hey, you're my crown of exaltation. Does that, you ever say that? No, you don't say that. But I want you to know that these words were just full, overflowing with meaning. A crown of exaltation. The word crown comes from the Greek word Stephanos. Um, if your name is Stephanie or Stephen, that meant that your parents said, you are our crown. That's a really good name. You should be very happy about that. There were worse names, and they said crown, Stephanie, Stephen. And in the Greek and Roman period, crowns were something that was highly recognized and very valued. The Greeks thought that the human body was the greatest of all creations. And when they would, a human body, a human would be participating in athletic contests, the winner, if you could win, it was believed that you were bringing exaltation to the god, the little G-O-D, that was, the games were dedicated to. So if I think of the Olympics and different, these different athletic events and um, a series of events that they would have would be dedicated to gods and what would happen is if you were the victor each of these gods had plants that they were associated with it could be like ivy or myrtle or celery or oak or uh it wasn't it wasn't poison ivy or poison oak okay but they would and what they would do is like they would take these plants and they would make a crown out of them and if you were the victor like who needs gold medals right you would get like a crown of celery put on your head because like celery was like the, the plant of this God. This was a big deal. I know you're laughing. And you're like, oh, I can't imagine that. But that's what it was. And this was a huge honor. And you'd bow your head and they put this crown of like ivy like on your head. And it was really cool for about a day, but you know, like it would start like drooping, you know, because it's like drying out. And you'd probably like put some water on there. I got to try to keep this thing together, right? Because I, everybody needs to know that I'm the winner, but it eventually just kind of fall apart, right? And you just like, well, oh, I think I'm done wearing the celery for now. And you just set that aside. But the kings in Greeks, they were priest kings. You see, they would represent a god, and they also wore crowns, but they weren't perishable crowns, They were imperishable ones, meaning that the crowns, that plant, it was actually like made of gold, and they would wear it. And when Paul says that you are a crown of exaltation, that's what he's speaking of. You, you at the coming of Jesus, you who have come to know Christ, and you who are growing mature in him, that you worship him, you love him, you serve him, you are engaged in the body of believers. You live by faith. You might even die by faith you are our crown of exaltation you're the one we're rejoicing in when jesus comes it's going to be a great celebration of what god has done in your life and we're just so grateful that we had just a little role in that it's living with vision that's what people need to live with a vision of who you are in christ and you minister from that position so at fellowship bible church we got a vision. We want every single person to be growing deep in Christ and reaching out. Four words, growing deep, reaching out. Think of a tree. We want you to come to know Christ where you're like a little sapling, but we want you, don't want you to stay there. We want you to become fully mature like those giant oaks. It's a vision so that when Christ comes, you're presented in the fullness of maturity. You're walking with God. You've got integrity. You're on a life of worship. You're all about Jesus At every stage of development, we've got them here at Fellowship, from the person that's investigating Christianity to folks, friends, you just ooze the goodness of Jesus. You are fully mature. But friends, it can be challenging and difficult but if you live with this vision, like Peter even wrote of it, First Peter chapter five, verse 10, he says, "After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you." Yeah, it might be tough right now, but friends, live for the future. Have that vision. Jesus is going to accomplish it all. So despite the difficulties and the dangers and all the problems that you face and the disappointments, you live with a vision of what god is doing not only in your life but in the lives of those you influence you see paul's motivation for ministry it wasn't money it wasn't popularity it wasn't to be well liked like i'm going to do ministry so people will think nice about me those are wrong motives for ministry the only motive for genuine spiritual ministry is jesus christ and his glory and that's how they were living And if you're going to really minister like this, to be a thriving spiritual leader, you're going to have to love. The heartbeat of a thriving leader is love. Years ago, Karina and I watched a movie called Mr. Holland's Opus. Does anybody know what an opus is? Yeah, it's a musical composition, okay? And Mr. Holland is a very talented, gifted musician, songwriter. Coming out of music school, he has got high aspirations that he is going to write, like, some masterpiece music and that people are really going to enjoy this, you know? And that was his goal and his whole orientation. But uh, you realize, coming out of music school, you got to put bread on the table, right? Um, and so he ends up taking a job as a high school band teacher in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he's married, um, you know, but he's got this dream. Uh, so what he does is he teaches music all during the day. And I want you to know that is a special calling if you are a high school band teacher. I know because I was in high school band and I put my teacher through it, you know? So, you know, it's challenging. But he's doing it. He's putting up with all of those students and he's investing and pouring them. And at night, he comes home and guess what he's working on? Musical compositions because he got the dream. But you know how it is. Life takes over. Not only is he married, but then they have a a boy. And that little boy they discover is deaf and that comes with us all set of challenges, and, and yet he, uh, you know, he's doing what he can, but he finds himself just giving himself fully to his students, working with them and all their awkwardness and helping them grow and develop and challenging them, and by the time after 35 years, we find that all of a sudden Glenn Holland's job is being eliminated because they just, they just don't have it in the budget anymore for art and band and music, and they're going to have to do away with it. And so after 35 years, he's fighting for the ability to really use art and music to develop students. And it goes away, and he loses his job, and he's done. Well, after 35 years, a couple days after school's out, summer has just gotten started. He's in his office, and he's got a box, and he's kind of putting stuff in it. The relics and the memories of investing in all of these students over the years. His wife and his son come and join him, and He's walking out, and they're walking by the auditorium, and he hears a bunch of noise and music, and, like, that's weird because it's summer break. Who's in there? He opens the door, and he looks, and the entire auditorium is filled with people, and there's there's people on the stage. They're, they're playing music, and he, and he looks, and they're, they're fellow colleagues and former colleagues and all these students that he's taught in the past and some from the present, and, and he's looking some more, and he's, like, on the stage, like, whoa, those are my students and former students that... They're playing music that, that I taught them. And there is a banner that says, Goodbye, Mr. Holland. And his wife is with him, and she, of course, is in on this. And so she takes him up front. And she kind of makes small talk because uh, they're waiting for the guest of honor who's going to be the master of ceremonies. And she comes in. She's running late. But it's none other than the governor of Oregon She gets to the stage, and here she is, and, you know, Mr. Holland's like taking this all in, and then she, the governor, addresses the crowd, and I want you to hear what she said. Mr. Holland had a profound influence in my life on a lot of lives, I know, and yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his life misspent. Rumor has it that he's always been working on this symphony of his. And this is going to make him famous and rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous. At least, not outside our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. But he'd be wrong, because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches, and fame. And looking at her former teacher and this student, this governor, his very first year, this girl was a really awkward teenager while trying to learn how to play the clarinet. And he poured in her and showed her and taught her that you can achieve great things. So the governor... Oregon looking at Mr. Holland sweeping her hand over the auditorium and all those that are on the stage she says this look around you there is not a life in this room that you have not touched and each one of us is a better person because of you we are your symphony Mr. Holland we are the melodies and the notes of your opus we are are the music of your life. And then she hands Mr. Holland the baton. And for the first time, that great symphony that he wrote would be performed, and he would lead it. And friends, I, want to, I tell you this, because the Thessalonians, the people that Paul invested, they were his hope, his joy, his crown of exaltation. I want you to know that you, as a pastor of this church, I want you to know that you are my hope, my joy, my crown of exaltation. I want you to know Jesus deeply and love him from the heart and be everything that he's intended for you to be. And friends, that kind of vision you need to have with the people that you're influencing in your family, in our church, in our community. The heartbeat of a thriving leader is love. And we love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of your scripture. Once again, just by reading your text that you've given us, you show us what it means to know you, to walk with you, what thriving looks like in the grace of God. For someone who is here today who's never truly trusted in your son, Would they just pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning, I trust in you. I need your leadership in my life. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, Lord, we're asking God that you would help us by your spirit to engage with love. That you would give us the willingness and the grace to endure with grace. And that we would encourage people with vision. And so, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm so grateful that you are with us this morning. As you know, we've been praying and been involved in a search for an adult ministries pastor to join our team because we want to do a good job of shepherding the souls of the people that are part of Fellowship Bible Church. And this morning, I'd like to introduce to you uh, our candidate that we've been working with for some time, and I'd like you to meet uh, George Olmstead. He and his wife, Sarah, and their three wonderful kids have been with us this extended weekend. This isn't the first time we've seen George. We've been engaging with him for some time, and so I'm asking George if you would join us for a little interview, so if you want to just grab a stool here, and uh, here, let me turn this on for you here. I think we're on here. Um, it should be on, but it's not. Um, did it go on? Uh, okay, we're good. All right, we should be good. Well, have a seat here. All right, so George, I've got a few questions here for you. So I gave you ones that we prepared, but you were so good first service, I have totally changed them up, okay? So I know you're going to be really encouraged. There's a few theological things I've never been able to reconcile, so I thought you could clear them up for us today, okay? Just kidding. Okay, no, no, I wouldn't do that. Okay, first question I'd like to ask you is just, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about your growing up
1: years? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was born in Lawton, Oklahoma. My parents are from the East Coast, so they were stationed uh, in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and I was born there. And then my dad became a police officer in Wichita Falls, Texas, and moved us there uh, before I was one year old. And so uh, we moved to Wichita Falls. My parents were not believers at the time. Uh, throughout the first couple of years there, they had a, uh, a minister knock on their door and invite them to church. It was some neighbors. And my mom accepted that offer and uh, she attended church. And I shared with the first service uh, the first time she attended uh, a church service, she uh, placed her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that began to change the course of of what our family would be. My dad, uh, three or four years later decided that he would, uh, give this God a chance. And he began to attend services. And, uh, uh about six months later, he came to know Christ mm-hmm. as savior. And my dad was the believer that when God changed him and it's continuously changing him. But as when he'd made that initial justification, uh, he, he became a man of God that led our home. And through that, I was raised in church, uh, my entire life, uh, but it wasn't until I was 17 that uh, I really grasped what Jesus Christ did for me and my sin. And it was at that moment where uh, I placed my faith and trust in him. I had been the teenager and the child who had kind of known all the Bible stories and all the answers, but I never had that relationship with Christ until mm-hmm. 17. I remember on a Sunday morning placing my faith and trust in Jesus, as uh, and he was graciously Good hmm. and saved me yeah. that day. And so, just a wonderful upbringing, and then uh, my parents uh, continues to serve, continue to serve the Lord, to have another brother that's in ministry as well. And mm-hmm. so, just uh, huh. just very fortunate to what be. A, what a
0: tremendous story! Yes, How sir. cool is that? That's really cool. <laughs>
1: yeah can you can you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So on the screen here, uh, my wife is actually uh, at the back. Sir, so just like, say hi real quick. There you go. Uh, that is not only the better half, the best half of the family, right? there but uh, Sarah and I have been married for 17 years real quick story my, uh, my mom worked for her dad for 10 to 12 years and we kind of reconnected uh, a, little, a little later on in life and so our families are very uh, very well known to one another and so Sarah and I have been married 17 years uh, there the, the one on my right uh, here is Drew he is really George Edward Olmstead IV fourth. His name is, nickname is spelled D-R-U for quadruple. My wife would not let me call him Quattro, So we, said, <laughs> we figured out quadruple for D-R-U, and so he's, he goes by Drew. He's 14. He has received Christ as Savior. He loves Jesus, and we're so fortunate to have him uh, in our lives. Thaddeus Paul is the young man there on, my, uh, on the, I guess, I don't know. Y'all, y'all okay. see right there. Uh, Thaddeus Paul. He is 12 years old. He loves Jesus, has received Christ as Savior, and we are fortunate to have children who have already come to that profession of faith and and love Christ. And then that little sweet girl that I'm holding there, uh, her name is Gabrielle Elizabeth, and she will turn four in seven days. And so she has just been such a great... uh, a great addition to our family. She has made us complete, we believe, and it's just so awesome. So our family, are, we definitely love, we love sports. My boys love sports, baseball, football, golf, uh, and uh, so we, we love Jesus. We love serving each other and serving other folks.
0: Mm, that's awesome. You know, yeah. as we've been getting to know you, we've really been impressed uh, by your capacity and your heart for being a pastor. Can you just tell us why
1: you are a pastor? Yeah, absolutely. And I, the, the easiest way to answer that question is: is I love people. I love people from from all different walks of life. I, I I love to engage folks in conversation. I love to learn about people. But most importantly, I want to point people to Jesus, and that is my heart. That's my life's goal and passion. And that word, pastor, you know, has that has that meaning of shepherding. And, and my heart is to shepherd folks from the from the moment I meet them to begin to shepherd them as they allow me to do this, whether they know Christ or do not know Christ, to shepherd them where they are with Christ to becoming a leader for Christ, whether that means in inviting them to know Christ and, and seeing them be saved or whether meeting someone who's a new believer and saying, hey, how what is god 's purpose for you? Where is He driving you to in your walk with him what 's your destination and As Grant preached this morning, uh, thriving as a as a as a leader, a spiritual leader in whatever that sphere of influence you have, that is my heartbeat that 's mm. what I believe in pastoring to be there for folks when 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 the season is great, but to be there when the season is just maybe there 's a loss of hope and, and just and be that encourager Grant to say. Mm. No, there's always hope, hmm. and hope is found in Christ. No matter what okay. season we find ourselves in or situation, that's really what I believe the call of pastor is in my life, is to, to love and to encourage. I want to be an encourager to people to know who Christ is and where he desires for them to go.
0: That's so good. So can you actually just share a little
1: bit of your heart for adult ministry? Yes, and so I, I shared this, and I don't know if it went over well or not last service, but that's okay. Uh, as adults, sometimes I think, I think we kind of find ourselves as just more, more stubborn older teenagers. I think sometimes <laughs> that's where we find ourselves, right? And you may go, no, that's not me. Well, maybe I'm talking for myself. But adult ministry allows us, to really, for me to come in and meet people where they are, like I said, and to encourage them in their in their walk, whether it be a, a women 's ministry or a men 's ministry or whether it be a small group or life group ministry, to come in and say, "Are we just doing something to do something or are we driving this with purpose, and the purpose is to fulfill the mission of Christ mm-hmm. and adult ministry, I believe, allows us to take take that that new believer or maybe that immature believer and show them again as we shepherd them how do they become that leader for Christ, as you talked about this mm-hmm. morning, uh, or to find that mature believer who has maybe been doing the same ministry or for a while and, and, and to be able to say, hey, this is another gift that you might have and to be able to, to allow you to thrive in, in that area. But we as adults, we need to be encouraged. We need to be loved. We need to be pushed. We need to be held accountable all through the love of Christ, mm-hmm. showing grace to one another. So adult ministry, my passion is to come and to say, hey, although things might be going well, how can we allow them to, to thrive beyond what even our expectation is as humans? Because Mm. God has such a greater expectation, right? right, Grant. So that's kind of adult ministry. My passion in that is to, is to come and be your encourager to help you get where God is calling you to go. Hmm. That's awesome.
0: All right. So I'm going to just in closing, ask you a few (laughs) rapid fire questions. All All right. right. You ready? Okay. First of all, Mac or PC Mac. All right. Um, Coffee or Coke? Dr. Pepper. That works. He's in the right town, right? All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next one here. Um, there's a lot riding on this one. I know. Aggies, Longhorns, or Bears? A
1: boomer Sooner.
0: Whoa. Okay. All right. I can understand if y'all say no. This, this final one? I, I know you're, uh, you've, you've trained all your life for this one here. Okay. Brisket or Tofu?
1: brisket. All okay. The I, okay. We're that's good. good. We could at least end on a high note. So. so,
0: well, all right, we'll, we'll give George a uh, Thank you. Thanks. Thank y'all. Okay. So I want you to meet George and Sarah and their lovely kids. They're going to be in the South foyer uh, right after service. So I'm going to close in prayer, but you can make sure you catch George and Sarah uh, right after service. So let's just pray. Lord,